Well, guys, uh, Happy New Year. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you all. Um, you'll need that passage from um, Matthew Open, and I'm going to uh, pray as we jump into it. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, as you always do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I remember when uh, Emma was born, one of the things that happened is we let everyone know that they could come and visit, which was a mistake because what happened in our small kind of little um, uh, hospital room, um, we had, at one count, we had 20 people. And one of the nurses came in and said, oh, mate, it's, it's a big party going on in here. And then she had a quiet word with me and she said, you shouldn't probably have that many people in this small room. So we had to ask people to leave. But, but what was really interesting was everyone had come together. Everyone was united around this beautiful little, little baby, right? And I can remember when uh, we, we just started here, it was six months uh, into my pastorate here about five years ago, that Elijah was born. And it's very interesting to see you guys gather around us as a family, unite around us as a family. And every day there was food, or, you know, someone would knock on the door and say, we cook this for you so much. And it was a lot of food. We've got two fridges and both of them were filled, so much so that we actually had to get up and say, thank you for all your food, you can stop now. We were thinking of actually having a side hustle and starting our own cafe with all the food that you were cooking us. It was amazing, right? It seems like for a lot of us, having a child, a child being born is a beautiful thing, a unifying thing. And yet I do know families where a child has come along and it's been anything but unifying. In fact, I know one family once that had a, a, a baby that, and this family was ripped apart because the, the mother-in-law was telling the mum how to do all the things, what she should be doing differently and, and putting so much pressure. And, and there was not the support there. The, 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 uh, the sister-in-law was doing similar things but saying contradictory things to the mother. And so when the new mum was doing the things that the mother said, the sister said, no, you're doing it all wrong. And then, the mom, then she would change things and the mother-in-law would say, no, 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 you're doing it all. Whoever told you to do that is an idiot, Right? And this, this family fractured under the weight of that. A beautiful thing, it's a beautiful thing to have a baby. You hope that families can come together, that people can come together. But it doesn't always happen. The birth of Jesus is more like the second than the first. In fact, the birth of Jesus was one of these things that actually brought disunity, not unity, the, the birth of Jesus didn't bring harmony. It actually brought hostility. And here's the thing. If you really encounter the true Jesus, the, God, the, the Jesus of the Bible, the historical Jesus, you will realize why he actually brings disunity, why he brings hostility, not so much harmony a lot of the time. Because if you get who Jesus is, you'll realize that, that there's polar opposite reactions that you've got to have to him. You'll either worship him or want nothing to do with him and totally reject him. You can't sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. I remember um, when I first became a Christian, I was trying to tell everyone about Jesus at my school. And I remember one of, the, um, one of my friends, she, she said, you, I'm sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. 
And I said, you can't sit on the fence because the devil owns the fence. Now, that's a really dumb way of actually saying it, right? But I think that's what the Bible says. I think what I would say now to my friend is if you're sitting on the fence, you actually haven't encountered the real Jesus. So I want to ask you today, when it comes to Jesus, how, what have you decided? Are you worshipping him or totally rejecting him? Now, you're probably going, well, hands, I'm a Christian. Of course, I have, I'm worshipping him. But does every area of your life show that? We're going to see how divisive Jesus was even as a baby, how certain people were hostile towards him even as a baby. We're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We are going to see the choice, the threat, and the invitation. The choice, the threat, and the invitation. So let's have a look at at the the first point. Let's look at the choice that is before us. Have a look at um, Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 with me. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, those Magi were, it was brought, you know, made popular almost or, or contemporary or something like that with the three kings of Orient are. There may not have been three. There may have been seven. There may have been less than three. It doesn't really matter. But these guys were, were probably from, from Babylon and, and they traveled down to Jerusalem, which is like walking on foot or on, on horseback or camelback or, or something uh, going from here to Adelaide. That's how, how far they would have gone. And, and, and who these people were, we know from history, is that they were astronomers and scientists. They were learned people, and, and they not only knew the stars and the constellations very well, that they knew of the religions in the area. And so they knew that the Jewish people were expecting a great king. And so they see this, this star or this constellation or something that is happening in, in, in the in the night sky and they follow it and they come to Jerusalem expecting to see a king. But did you notice what what kind of king this was? Have a look at verse 2. Did you see how it's not that Jesus is going to become king? Have a look at verse 2 with me. It says this, And ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? You, you see, when what happens usually, a, 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 someone is born and they may be a prince or a nobleman, something like that, and they, they grow up and one day they will be king, just like Prince Charles may be king if his mum ever gets off the throne, right? Or maybe not. I don't know what's going to happen there, right? But no, Jesus, as soon as he is born, he is king. And did you see the king language, verse 1, that they are? It's during the time of King Herod. Verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Verse 3, when King Herod. If you go through, there's king language all the way through this passage. In verse 4, Jesus is called the Messiah, which is God's appointed king. 
In, in verse 6, there's a quote from the Old Testament which is talking about a ruler or a king. There's all this kingly language here. And here's the thing. Herod was self-appointed king of the Jews. It's a bit like, you know, when there's a boxer and they give themselves a nickname like I am the greatest or something like that. And you go, man, as an Aussie, we don't like that because that's pretty arrogant. Well, King Herod was a guy who said, well, actually, I am the king of the Jews, even though he really wasn't. He was, he was a self-appointed king. But here is Jesus and he is the king of the Jews. In, in fact, here's a bunch of learned men from a country far, far away, and they are saying, here he is, the king of the Jews. And here's the question Matthew was putting it before us. Who is the one that you're going to worship? Is it Herod or is it Jesus? Now, you're probably going, well, hands, Herod's been dead for 2,000 years. That's a pretty easy choice. It is Jesus. But here's the thing. Herod may be dead, but there's Herods all around us. There's other things that we worship. Uh, worship things like our careers, our jobs, or anything. And you're probably going, well, well I'm not sure I, I, I agree with that. Well, have a listen to what a man named, uh, an American author, David Foster Wallace, said. He was asked to give uh, an address at Kenyon College on their uh, kind of like a commencement address. And here's what he says about you and I and our worship. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or some spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much everything else will, you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will feel ugly. And when, the, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need more power ever over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. He is saying, it doesn't matter who you are. You are worshipping something. At the centre of your life is the thing that defines you. At the centre of your life is the thing that, that so shapes your life that you are bowing down to it and you may not even know. It's interesting, there was two things in there. He mentioned beauty and he, and he also mentioned intellect. Over the last couple of weeks, I guess, for me or, or months, I've seen many people who are worshipping at the idol of beauty and the idol of intellects. Um, my, my gym, uh, Macquarie Uni gym, has closed down because they're putting in all these new machines and stuff over the last week, so I've gone to another gym. And what's interesting is if, if, you, know, if you go from gym to gym, if you've gone to a couple of gyms like I have, there, there's different cultures of gyms, right? 
and, and um, some, some are really like hardcore and all this kind of stuff. The gym I've been going to, the, the interesting thing is all gyms have mirrors. And yet I've never been to a gym where people are checking themselves out in the mirror as much as this gym. Not even with their weights. They're not checking out their form, which is what the mirror's there for, by the way. It's interesting, as I've been working out, to see how many guys are doing this. Of course, they've got far more muscle than I have, right? How many they're doing this? How many girls are checking themselves out in the mirror? And they're always checking themselves out. And yet, what David Foster Wallace is saying and I think he's right, is I dare say if there was someone who had maybe bigger biceps or, or more muscle or less fat so their abs were showing a little bit more, I dare say the, the guys who are flexing will feel weak and puny. I dare say if there was a body part or body parts that, that the girls were, were not really satisfied with, they would see another girl in the gym who has that body part shaped better, they would feel ugly. And yet we see the worship of beauty there. And one of the things I do is I, I follow a bunch of uh, uh, biblical academics on Twitter, right? And I, um, a lot of the time I'm not sure why I do. But um, just last year, uh, late last year, there was a bunch of uh, conferences over in the States, uh, Society of Biblical Literature, all this kind of stuff, where they can get up and, and, and give um, papers that are interesting to them and uh, maybe a few others, but they probably wouldn't be interesting to, to most of us here, and yet people go there and do that. And what's very interesting is when they come away, when they put on Twitter, is they talk about how much they felt like a fraud and felt silly and stupid when they were there. And how senior academics would, would post to their, their, their tweets and say, don't worry, it still happens, I still feel like this. What is happening there? Well, you've got a bu bunch of people who are getting together to, to talk about their research, but they've made their life all about the academics, about knowing stuff, about being uh, you know, on top of the thought world. And yet they will meet people there that will know more or better things or have a different take. And so they feel threatened, they feel fraudulent. So we, can, we all worship something, and the problem with worshiping anything other than Jesus is the very thing that we worship will consume us. What happens? What would happen to my friends at the gym if they got injured, they couldn't work out, and they became fat? What would happen if, if someone wrote a PhD that refuted everything I wrote in mine? Is my life then worth living? And, and you're probably thinking, well, Hans, I, I don't struggle in those two areas, but I dare say uh, we do something similar because both of, those, both of those people or both those groups of people are really concerned about what other people think of them really concerned about being seen as beautiful or being seen as smart. And we do the same thing. 
Some of us really want to be seen as having our lives together. I think, can I just say for our church, that's the big thing? And I'll tell you why I think it's the big thing or, or, or how I've seen it. I have noticed in our church that we're very reluctant to get real with each other, to say, I'm really struggling with this or I've got this pattern of sin in my life. Don't worry, it's not just our church. When I talk about pastors who, who are uh, who are pastors of upper middle class churches like ours, that's what they say. We're so good at coming to church, or coming to Bible study or something. We don't share deeply. We go, oh, here's what the word says. Oh, that's great, but I'm I'm not actually going to talk about. Hey, I'm really struggling in my in my marriage because that makes me look a bit weak or wrong. I'm not going to tell you that I'm really struggling with this aspect of my life, this area of sin. Why? Because I'm really concerned with what you think. I've got to keep, I've got to save face. I've got to keep face. And what that shows us when we do that, and we all do it, it's I am far more concerned about what you think of me than I should be. See, if we were really worshipping Jesus with everything that we've got, if we were really uh, um, concerned with what he thinks of us and not other people, we we would be open, yes, appropriately, not to everybody, but we would be open about our struggles, our, our, our thoughts, our sins. Why? Because we know we're secure in Jesus. Other people may look down on us, but guess what? Jesus still loves me. See, Jesus is the only thing that you can worship, the only person that you can worship. And if you fail him, he won't reject you. People may reject you. The academy may reject you. The scale may reject you. But Jesus will never fail you. He will continue to love you and forgive you. If you cross Herod, he would kill you. If you cross Jesus and fail Jesus, he will forgive you. Make sure you worship Jesus and not anything else. That's a choice we face. Let's look at the next thing. Let's look at the threat. And don't worry, these next two points are not as long as the first. I'm sure you're relieved about that. Let's have a look at the threat of Jesus. Have a look at verse 3 again. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The word for disturbed there is is extremely dismayed. He's... He's extremely anxious. One of the things we know about Herod is that he, he was all about his own power and being in, in power. And here is a guy coming along who is, who is the rightful king of the Jews and therefore is, is this baby one day going to grow up to dispose of Herod? Herod was a man who was so hell-bent on power that he, he just got really anxious about his family. He killed a wife. He killed some of his kids because he thought that they were going to knock him off. And so he's disturbed. But you see who else is disturbed with him? All of Jerusalem with him. And it's not just that, that if uh, Herod's disturbed, they're all freaking out. No, I think what we see in the rest of the passage is... They have so wedded themselves to the political establishment that if Herod gets knocked out, they don't have any power either. These religious leaders aren't really following God. They're wedded to their power. I'll, I'll show you how. Have a look. 
Verse 4, when he called them, when he, sorry, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet, uh, sorry, the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had happened. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so that I may too go and worship him. What's really interesting here is this, that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they knew exactly where their king was going to be born in Bethlehem. They've got a a group of people from a foreign land saying, your king is going to be born. And do they travel the eight Ks from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? No, they don't. They're not searching for a king. They've wedded themselves to Herod and the political establishment. You can be extremely religious and not worship Jesus. You can know the scriptures extremely well and not worship Jesus. And yet, did you see once again how Herod responded? He was disturbed. Because here is Jesus, and this Jesus is a threat. This new baby king is a threat to Herod and his power. He is a threat because he is the true king, not Herod. So, See, the thing is, Jesus is always threatening. All the way through the Gospels, he's threatening. It's interesting, here in chapter 2, as a, as a babe, he's, he's, he's a threat because he's called king of the Jews. Later on in the Gospels, he's crucified as a threat. Why? Because he's the king of the Jews. The people of Jesus' day didn't want a true king. They didn't want Jesus. And do you realize this? If Jesus is truly the king of the universe, which he is... He's a threat to your and my self-sovereignty. See, the thing is, we want to be the kings and rulers of our lives. And yet, Jesus comes along and he says, guess what? You are not the king and ruler of your life. I am. And so therefore, therefore, we've got this choice. We can either see Jesus as the king of our lives and worship him or we can see him as an, as an imposter and we, we want nothing to do with him. There's an atheist, Thomas Nagel, and he says this about religion. He says this, I want atheism to be true and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He goes on to say the the reason why he doesn't want a God to exist is because he wants to run his own life. And he says he thinks that's at the heart of, of so much in our society. He's an atheist saying that. 
Why is he saying that? Because I think he gets who Jesus really is. Left to ourselves, our hearts are actually at war with Jesus. Left to ourselves, our hearts are at war with Jesus because he says, you're meant to bow the knee to me. I'm ruling your life. And what we say is, guess what? No, Jesus, I want to rule my own life. If you haven't felt the threat of Jesus, you haven't really encountered Jesus as he truly is. I remember um, listening to a talk and uh, there was was a a scholar who uh, basically didn't believe the Bible on what what he talked about Jesus, what it said about Jesus. And there was another scholar, a guy named N.T. Wright. And this this other scholar gave a 20-minute talk and then... N.T. Wright said, you know the problem with, and they were friends, so so it could be pretty open, you know the problem with your presentation of Jesus is that no one would kill him. You're saying he was all nice, he was all great, he was all beautiful, no one felt anything around him that was anything negative. No one would think of him as a threat. And therefore no one would crucify him. You see, if you believe in a Jesus that's makes you feel nice all the time. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the historical Jesus. He's the Jesus of your own imagination. Yes, there is joy and there is peace in knowing him. But there's also the uncomfortability where as Jesus points out the things in your life where he's saying, guess what? You need to change that because I am your king. That's where it gets uncomfortable. So you, when it comes to Jesus, he is the one that caused the shots. It is not you. What do you think about money? Well, the question is, what does Jesus think about money? And that's what you're meant to think. And that's how you're meant to practice. What does Jesus say about your... What, does, what do you say about your values? Well, the question is, what does Jesus think about your values? He's meant to set your values and that's how you're meant to live. What, what, does Jesus, what do you think about your, your, your time? Well, what does Jesus think about your time? And he's meant to set the way you view your time. What does he think about your sexuality or the sexuality of the world or different people? Guess what? It's Jesus who's meant to set what we think about our own sexuality and the sexuality of the world and what's right and wrong. It's not us. It's not our world. And that's why Jesus is so threatening to us because he says, I'm the king over everything. And if you really get him, you'll either want to worship him or crucify him. When I was at Resolved, I, uh, I was reading the Bible with this, this lady over about three months. And she said at the end, uh, we got to the end of Mark's gospel. It was like, I think, 16 weeks. We read a chapter a day. And um, she said, I don't want to be a Christian. And I said, oh, that's, that's, that's a shame. I said, I said, how have you found reading the Bible? She goes, well, you know, when I started reading the Bible with you, I like Jesus. Now I hate his guts. And I said, why? And she goes, because I know that he wants to rule my life and I don't want that. And I went away with this mixture of discouragement and encouragement. 
discouraged that she is not, she didn't want to follow Jesus, but encouragement because she really encountered who Jesus is. And as I was thinking and praying about this uh, sermon, I prayed for her because I want her to come to know Jesus, but she got who Jesus was. When you, when you get Jesus, you have this choice. Either you'll kill him as a threat to your life and your kingship of your own life, or you'll have to crown him the king of your life. What are you doing? And let's have a look at the last point, the invitation. Have a look at verse 10 with me. It says this, When they, that is the Magi, saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the home, sorry, the house, they saw the child with, with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. Here's the beautiful thing about that little picture. You've got the Magi, you've got Mary and Joseph. If we brought in Luke's gospel, you would have a bunch of shepherds, maybe in that picture. Maybe the chronology's not right, maybe the Magi came later, it doesn't really matter. But who were the first people to have who Jesus is revealed to them? It was a bunch of foreigners. It was a bunch of shepherds. Foreigners in Jesus' day were not meant to worship God were not meant to see who God is as much as the Jews were. It was the Jews who were meant to acknowledge who God was. But here are foreigners who can see who is the king of the Jews. And there we have shepherds there. And there we have two teenagers, Mary and Joseph, illiterate peasants coming to be the parents of the king of the Jews. See, the beautiful thing about the gospel and who God reveals himself to, and therefore invites in, he invites everyone in. It doesn't matter what country you come from or what background. It doesn't matter if you're really smart like the Magi or you were illiterate, probably like the shepherds. It doesn't matter what you have done, if you've been rejected by your family or not. It doesn't matter. Because the king of the Jews came to be your king. I'm not sure what you did for New Year's Eve, but me and my family, we, we went into Newtown. We had some pasta from the pasta bowl, and uh, you know the Italian bowl, sorry. And then we kind of had a tour around Newtown. Newtown was where I had my church before coming here. And uh, there's so many memories. You know, I was able to, we were able to show my kids where we had church and... Um, be able to show uh, the kids where I proposed to Kate and all these beautiful things. And as, as I was there, it brought back memories of being at that church and, and how, many, how different people would come to church, how there will be people with drug and alcohol addictions coming to church, how people were very confused about their relationships and, and who they were attracted to or not and, and their own gender and, and, and so many different things. And we, were, we loved them all and we told them all about Jesus. I remember there was one, one guy, Alex. Alex um, was a very smart man, but he was almost homeless. He lived in, in uh, uh, government housing and he, ha- he never cut his nails, so they were quite long. And he never cut his hair, it was very long. And um, he's very smart, but a bunch of things happened in life that just 
sent him the wrong way. And he was, he was uh, you know, he just had weird ideas. But over a couple of years, we were reading the Gospels together, reading books about Jesus. And when we closed down Resolve, he hadn't become a Christian. And I was really worried about Alex because I was worried about, you know, what, what's going to happen to him. A couple of years later, I was up at Katoomba and I, and I actually ran into Alex and he was living up there and he'd become a Christian. He still had his long nails. He still had his, his weird ideas. He still had his long hair. And yet he heard the invitation of Jesus to say, hey, it doesn't matter about who you are, what you've done, come, come. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to you. Jesus is saying, I am your king your king who died for you, come. Come to know me. Leave the things that you are worshipping behind and put your trust in me and love me because first I have loved you and died for you. Wouldn't it be great if we decided for this year, this new year, that Jesus was going to be the king of every area of our lives because first he is the king who loved us enough to die for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you sent Jesus as a baby, a baby who, who caused, uh, caused hostility, caused divisions. And yet, Lord, I pray that those of us who this morning have felt the sting of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, would not reject him, but will come near. Lord, for, if you have revealed things in our lives that, that need to change, I pray that you would help us to change. But Lord, I pray that we would be a, a group of people who are always holding out the invitation of Jesus to all who may come. And I pray also that those of us here who have not accepted that invitation, that we would come home. Come home to the King who loved us enough to die for us. Amen.